Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to talk about a very important subject, and that is handling criticism. Criticism can either be helpful or unhelpful. Criticism is is really unhelpful when it aims to attack the person and, and belittle them. But criticism is valuable when it seeks to help the person to grow to be like Christ. Today we're going to look at uh, Luke 23, 6-12, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with his critics on his way to the cross by being quiet in his response to his criticism instead of responding to them. And at the end of, of the episode today, uh, we're going to discover how to give godly criticism motivated by, motivated by loving God and people as, why, as well as why unhelpful criticism is unhelpful. Uh, Luke 23, 6-12 says this, And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. The account in Luke 23, 6-16 is found only in Luke's gospel. Luke recounts this incident to reveal both Pilate and Herod found Jesus innocent. Herod was glad in Luke 23, 8, not because he wanted to kill Jesus, but because he longed to see Jesus perform some sign. Now, Jesus makes no answer in this passage. His silence fulfills Isaiah 53, 7, placing the responsibility for his death on uh, the, the, the head of his accusers. Now, Jesus didn't respond to um, the injustice in this passage. And whether someone asked him to confess his true identity, he testified that he was the Son of God and the Son of Man or the King of the Jews or whatever proper title they wanted to give him. Why did Jesus here, though, refuse to defend himself? It may have been because there was nothing else to say. Herod had had his chance to hear the gospel, and now it hardened his heart. And by the time he, he closed his conscience and refused to repent, there was nothing left for Jesus or anyone else to say to him. And this is a warning to anyone who rejects the free gift of God's grace. Eventually, the day is going to come when he will have no more gospel to give you. And Jesus knew that there was no need to defend himself because his father would vindicate him at the right time by raising him from the dead. In fact, his very refusal to argue his case was, in fact, another proof of his perfect innocence. Psalm 37, 5-7 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as 
as a light and your justice as a noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in this way, over the man who carries out evil devices. See, these are all good reasons for Jesus not to speak in his own defense. In fact, his example reminds us not to be so quick to defend ourselves when attacked unjustly. It said Jesus' example here reminds us to wait patiently for the Lord to defend us. Remember the example Jesus set for us and what Peter taught us in 1 Peter 2, 22-23, which says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is an, one more further reason why Jesus refused to speak in his own defense, a reason that goes beyond anything we could ever do. Suffering in silence was part of the work that Jesus was called to do for our salvation. It was the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, Isaiah 53, verse 7, which says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now Jesus fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7, by refusing to protest his own innocence or to strike back at his accusers. The image Isaiah uses to convey the spotless innocence of the afflicted Savior was the pure image of a sacrificial lamb. In his quiet submission to the torments of his oppressors, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and thereby proved that he was a Savior whom God had promised to send. Now, Jesus suffered in silent majesty without protest so he could do the perfect work of our salvation. Never lose hope that Jesus did this so that he would have something to say when we ourselves are put on trial. One day we will all appear before God for judgment. If we have nothing to say, then it will not be because of our perfect innocence, but because there's nothing that we really can say in defense of our own sinful selves. And yet the good news is that Jesus will have something to say. Though silent in his own defense, he will not be silent in defense of anyone who trusts in him. You see, Jesus has promised that one day he will openly acknowledge everyone who openly acknowledges him in Luke 12, 8. Through faith in Christ, when you at last appear before God, justly accused of all your sin, Jesus will plead the merits of his own royal and innocent righteousness. And having suffered for your sins all the way to the cross, he will speak up and he will tell his Father to give you the verdict that you, that not that you deserve, but the verdict that he deserves. You see, the best way to handle criticism is to get on your knees and to seek the face of God in his word and prayer. Any criticism that, that Christians offer should be grounded in love. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. That should be our primary guide in giving criticism. Godly criticism is true. It's loving. It, it ought to come from a humble, caring heart that wishes the best for the other person. Godly criticism should never be bitter. It should never be condescending. It should never be insulting. It should never be cold-hearted. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
First, uh, First Corinthians thirteen four through seven says, "Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not r- arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And a criticism, if it's loving, will uh, express these virtues." In criticism, the most important thing that we could say, it must be grounded in God's word. Sometimes, you know, criticism is based on hearsay. This is gossip. Uninformed criticism will, in most situations, end up embarrassing the critic when the truth is revealed. The self-righteous Pharisee is criticized. Jesus, though, based his criticism on their own faulty stances when the truth was not on their own si- on their side. Godly criticism is concerned to be critical of what the Bible is critical. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches that the word of God is profitable for reproof and correction. In other words, the inspired word of God leads Christians to analyze situations critically. In fact, this is really, really important for us to understand. This is what I just said is, is what it means to be discerning. Uh, being discerning means that you're testing, you're analyzing things to see if it is so in the Word of God. Uh, and, and you know, we live in a culture, as we've often talked about here on this show, that, that thinks very uncritically. The Christian, though, is to think uh, and, and to test and to analyze all things and be a Berean, searching the Scriptures to see if... It is so, and like the Thessalonians, receiving the word with gladness and joy after they have searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. You know, and, and here's the other thing that I would say about that is, is we should ask clarifying questions. We should not immediately uh, assume um, intent um, that where we don't know that there was not an intent. For example... You know somebody that somebody that is some somebody might write, for example, a very unclear sentence, um, and in that case, we should ask, "Hey, did you mean this 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 way?" However, um, the flip side of that is if somebody writes a very clear sentence and there's no ambiguity about what they mean, we are right and just to criticize that and to point out that that statement is not biblical that it is in well if it's if it's an error we we are right we are well within our rights to call it out but there's a difference here one the first example perhaps the person isn't as clear as they could have been so we want to give them the benefit of the doubt we want to ask a question before we correct them but there are many, many people who are very clear and they say what they mean. And then many people, many Christians, unjustly give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, there, there is a flip side to this. As Christians, we should always give the benefit of the doubt. We, we should, you know, be gracious and kind and thoughtful. But when somebody makes a very clear statement and then you know, we don't call it out, and we just say, given the benefit of the doubt, uh, you know, we, I don't think, are, are being uh, uh, as careful as we should be. 
we are told, we are commanded to speak the truth in love. Notice, it's not first that we love, we stand on the truth. And so if somebody is making statements, very clear statements, denying the, the truth, or, or even a essential truth, especially about the, the scriptures, the gospel, and so on and so forth, we need to be clear and we need to call that out. If somebody is not clear, unclear, or, or the statement isn't clear, then we need to start asking questions. That's, that's what I mean. But oftentimes, especially on social media, we, when a statement is clear, if you make a statement about that clear statement because that person said what they meant, you are criticized unjustly because you spoke out against that person and you didn't give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think personally that that's unjust, uh, that's just criticism, I mean, because like I, like I was saying, unjust criticism isn't based on the facts. Just criticism is based on the facts. We as Christians are to test and to, uh, to test things, all things, all statements, all teaching, all blog posts, all podcasts, even this podcast, by the word of God. So we need to desperately understand this because um, most of what happens on social media is, um, especially, for example, when I make a statement, I'm very careful about you know, looking at what that means, what are they saying, is it clear, is it not clear, um, is, what's the track record of, of the person, have they made other clear statements that, you know, people, where people gave them uh, a large measure of the benefit of the doubt, should they be given the benefit of the doubt? You know, we, we should always be motivated by love, that love for, but the, the first and primary motivation for the Christian is a love for the truth of God's word. We should not have a fear of man to tell the truth. We should not be afraid of what any man thinks. Our primary uh, concern is for the glory of God and the good of people. And so calling out error is absolutely appropriate. It's absolutely godly. And anyone who suggests anything else uh, is likely, likely, I say, they're likely more focused on what it means to love that person than actually loving the truth, which actually enables us to love them. We need to be careful. We are to contend for the truth, but we are not to be contentious. And this is really, really an important thing um, because, you know, when we discuss how to handle criticism, we also need to be aware of a critical spirit. And there's a significant difference between helping somebody grow in grace and being overly critical. A critical spirit is it's never pleased. It expects and finds disappointment wherever it looks. It, it's looking for evidence rather than looking, I should say, for evidences of God's grace and even loving people. A critical spirit judges falsely. It's easily provoked. It accounts for every wrong. A critical spirit damages the critiqued and the critic. But biblical criticism, it's helpful. It's loving. It's based on the truth of God's word. You see, correction is to be gentle. It comes from love. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 teaches that the spirit wants to produce 
in God's people, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if criticism cannot be expressed in keeping with the fruits of the Spirit, it's better that you just be quiet. Now, John Newton is, is well-known, he is well-loved in many sectors of evangelicalism for his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. What's typically not known about uh, Newton is that he and his friend William Wilberforce took a bold stance against slavery. They became acquainted with the right and the wrong ways of dealing with difficult people, criticism, and controversy. In 1771, he was asked to write an article for the British periodical Gospel Magazine in order to provide uh, pastoral counsel regarding the ongoing controversy between Calvinists and Arminians. And since its publication on, on the title On Controversy, uh, Newton's article has become one of the church's most well-known and most loved writings on engaging controversy. Newton's letter sets forth how Christians should deal with difficult people, criticism, controversy. In the beginning of the letter, Newton explains why controversy exists, why Christians must love and earnestly contend for the truth. The three rules he offers are, one, consider our opponent, two, consider our audiences, and finally, consider ourselves. In the conclusion of the letter, Newton directs our focus, the focus of our eyes, on God's kingdom and on God's glory as the end of any controversy in which we might engage. John Newton's thoughts on handling controversy need to be considered by many Christians today, as many times, rather than listening to our critics or even to those who care about us, we immediately become defensive. See, dealing with difficult people reveals our pride by exposing our sin. You know, there was a, there was a man, um, I, I myself was guilty of this about six or seven years ago. Uh, there was a man in my Bible study, and uh, he was trying to get through to me that he felt that I personally didn't care for him. Now, I, I, I want to share that I, I felt that I did. I prayed for him. He shared his prayer needs, but he himself wasn't connecting my care for him. He, he just thought that I was more interested in, in teaching him per personally. That's how he felt. One day in a meeting uh, with a men's leader at, at this particular church in Idaho that we were in, and uh, it, can, it hit me. What he's saying is he doesn't feel that I personally care about him as a person. And I said, brother, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that you that you feel this way. And I went over. I said, can you stand up for a minute? I want to give you a hug. I gave him I gave him a hug right there on the spot. You see, I viewed him. I was viewing this man as an opponent to be one. I owed him an apology. He wasn't an he is not an opponent. That difficult person that you're dealing with is not an opponent to be won, somebody to be overcome, an argument to be won. That difficult person is a sandpaper person, and God is using that person to uh, work out your salvation. He's, the Lord is going to use that person to help you to grow, because difficult people, uh, they reveal our pride. They reveal issues in our life. They help to uh, expose our sin. In fact, the danger of receiving criticism is not to your reputation. It's to your heart. If you're anything like me, I, I have the propensity, uh, by God's grace, I've, I've grown in this, but I, I still have the propensity 
to respond defensively to criticism. But that's not the, the proper way to respond to criticism. When we respond like this, it says more about where we are in our walk with God than where the other person is. When, when dealing with criticism or difficult people, we, we need to see if there's a kernel of truth to what the person is saying. We need to hear them out. We need to be slow to speak and, and you know, slow, quick, slow to, slow to speak, quick to listen, and, and slow everything down. We need to, does this person, for example, let, let's go here. Does this person really care about me? Do they have the best interest in mind? Where, where are they at in their, you know, walk with the Lord and those kind of things? Um, and are, are they are they motivated by a genuine concern for God or or what where are they at? Um, these kind of things help us to to receive like like a, a several of my good friends. If they tell me something, I'm going to be like, you know, I'm really going to 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 really think about that because I know that they really care about me. And I'm most likely going to receive that or I might ask a question or, hey, are you saying this kind of thing? Um, this is, in this way, we're not pushing back when we do that, by the way. You shouldn't receive that as putback, pushback when somebody asks a clarifying question. It's perfectly okay and acceptable to ask those kind of questions. Uh, in fact, they show maturity. You're wanting to understand why the person is saying this and all those things. In fact, this is a good practice for all of us, especially as we engage theological controversy. Um, I have always been slow to come out, and, um, mostly for the majority uh, of my ministry, I have been slow to speak out on a variety of things because I want to see not only uh, to understand what the doctrine is, I want to see its fruit. And seeing what the fruit of a doctrine takes time. You know, the, the, the position might sound good, but what does it produce? I want to, because doctrine not only... It is 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 not just a, a, a proposition. It it not only means something, but it 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 produces something. And if it if it that if that doctrine doesn't produce a sound holy living and help God's people to grow, then I'm going to be very concerned about that. And that takes time. It takes time to see that. And so I I personally, when theological controversy happens by and large, um, unless it's an essential, you won't really see me uh, speak out about it too much, uh, at least initially. But, you know, rather than just responding poorly to criticism, uh, try to identify your own shortcomings. Repent in your own heart before the Lord and be humble. It's, it will then be possible to learn from criticism, to stay gracious to the critic, even if you disagree with what uh, they've said. I, I remember sitting in one of my mentor's office in Idaho, and, and we were having a conversation about a difficult person. And he said, Dave, you know, um, it was almost an aside. He said he was talking and talking and talking, and he said, you know, uh, as I sit in this office, um, I often have to pray, Lord, help me to see that person through uh, the lens of your word and of your grace. And what that does is it really gets us to slow down and and to see that person. Hey, they're made in the image and likeness of God, and they are in need of the grace of God. And here they are before me having a conversation. This is an opportunity for me to show that I care about them, that I'm going to listen, that I'm going to, you know, 
pray for them and encourage them in the faith and those kind of things. Now, when criticism is handled properly, both parties learn and they benefit. For example, the one receiving criticism feels cared for by the friend or the, the brother or sister in Christ who offered insight into how they can handle a situation or circumstance even better in the future. The one who gave the criticism feels cared for by, by the one who received the criticism because the receiver considered and even valued their perspective. Both the giver and the receiver of criticism must be humble in order for this to happen. This is why, by and large, when, when I uh, get feedback on an article or a book from an editor who's you know taken the time to seriously gone over my work and those kind of things— I'm gonna, I'm gonna mostly, probably 95%, maybe 98% of the time, I'm going to receive what that editor had to say because of what I'm saying. Because I miss things, I don't see everything very clearly, and and especially with my own writing in particular, and I need help. And so uh, this is one one very practical example of of receiving just criticism. Because uh, we we miss things, things are especially when you're writing. Uh, even though I'm a, a seasoned writer and editor, um, I miss things and I I, I need help. Um, and so this is just that's just one very practical example of that working itself out in our lives. Uh, John Newton comments: A man may have the heart of a Pharisee, while his head is stored with orthodox notions of the unworthiness of the creature and the rich graces of free grace. He says. And he continues, Yea, I, I would add, the best of men are not wholly free from this leaven, and therefore are too apt to be pleased with such representations as, as hold up our adversaries to ridicule and by consequence flatter our own superior judgments. Controversies, for the most part, are so managed as to indulge rather than to repress his wrong disposition, and therefore, generally speaking, they are productive of little good. They produce those whom they should convince and puff up those whom they should edify. I hope your performance will savor of a spirit of true humility and be a means of promoting it in others. You see, criticism exposes our pride. It shows us our need for Christ and our need to grow in Christ-like character. Well, lastly, as we wrap up this episode, dealing with difficult people, it gives us the opportunity for giving and receiving the grace of God. When criticism is received rather than opposed immediately, both parties are given a chance to express the gospel to one another. By taking this approach to criticism, rather than one party dominating the conversation, both parties are given a chance to express their thoughts and thus be a blessing to one another. The gospel calls the giver of the criticism to speak the truth in love, knowing that they are a saint and a sinner like the receiver of the criticism. The receiver of the criticism whether they agree with the criticism or even disagree with it, needs the insight of others to help them with their blind spots. You see, criticism is a tool the Redeemer uses to affect sanctification in our life as the people of God. So next time you're giving criticism, recognize it as an opportunity from God to grow in His grace and for His glory. Well, I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Equipping You in Grace podcast. I hope that it's been helpful and will equip you in your walk with the Lord as you seek to be faithful to Him. May God bless you and keep you until uh, next Monday and Wednesday. God bless you.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.